Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North. We, I, This has been kind of a running gag now. We've been in the process of troubleshooting this little audio problem we've had on the show. I think we fixed it now, although I feel my producer, Sean, has gotten a little too optimistic that we fixed it because he said, sounds good, before I'd even opened my mouth, which got a little bit confusing. So uh, maybe he's got a glimpse a few seconds into the future. But nevertheless, we have sorted it out. It is another week, Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. A lot of things I want to get to today, one of which is the brokenness of Canada and whether it's really possible for... He, he says he had already preloaded the message to send. Yes, but you didn't know it was accurate when you sent it. Perhaps he's that optimistic in his own abilities. Nevertheless, it is, uh, it's good to have you on the ball, Sean. It's good to have all of you tuned into the show. Uh, the brokenness of Canada that uh, we have talked about on the show time and time again ha has reached a bit of a boiling point where now there seems to be a, a bit of a delusion going on by our prime minister. He can't acknowledge how things are broken because he's been the guy there for the last eight years who is the one ultimately holding the bag if things are in fact broken. But he has started to paint a rather rosy picture of what Canada is all about and how things are in Canada. Take, for example, this comment he made in one of his press conferences last week. I'm going to continue working hard every day to build that future that we all know Canada can have. We are the best country in the world. Let's keep making it better. Oh, the best country in the world, but a little bit of room for improvement there, as he says. Let's keep making it better. Well, let's take a look at another clip from him uh, not long after that one. Times are really tough for a whole lot of people right now. And we're going to keep rolling up our sleeves and bringing forward the best possible solutions because Canadians can get through this. This is the best country in the world, and we're going to keep making it even better. Ah, uh, the best country in the world, and we're going to continue to make it better. And you can see all the little uh, bobblehead ministers in the background nodding up and down. This is the new talking point that just dropped. Canada is the best country in the world. Now, what is the big deal, right? You may find this a little bit of a weird thing for me to latch on to. Why wouldn't the Canadian Prime Minister say that Canada is the best country in the world? This was, you may recall a while back, a bit of a controversy in the case of Barack Obama, who decided to abandon this long-standing belief in American exceptionalism by saying that, well, yeah, America's the greatest, but the Greeks think that they're the greatest, and, you know, the Polish think that they're the greatest, and he didn't really want to position America as being all that greater than any any other country. Now, in the case of Justin Trudeau, again, Canadian Prime Minister thinks Canada is great. Shouldn't be a bit of a headline. It shouldn't be newsworthy. But in the case of Justin Trudeau, it is. I remind you of his far more tepid endorsement of the country back in 2018. What makes Canada special is not that we know that this is the best country in the world. It's that we know that it could be. We know our work together is not yet done. Not until every senior has a safe place to live. Not while anyone faces racism or injustice. Not while we still have so far to go on the path of reconciliation. 
I forget uh, from time to time that he went through that bearded phase. Uh, that was also, I believe, the press conference where there was one of those really, really awkward kisses between him and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, which we now fast forward a few years later, and the two of them have announced their separation. But nevertheless, in 2018, Canada was a country that we should just uh, kind of say, yeah, maybe there's a way that we could be the best country in the world. But now... Canada's great. Everything's wonderful. Bring out the lobster. Bring out the oysters. Pop the champagne. We're going to have a celebration because we are on top. We're number one. Well, it's a little bit odd, though, isn't it? That this is a country that just a couple of years ago had the flag at half-mast for the better part of half a year because we had to all collectively hang our heads in shame about what Canada was. And you may recall, if you go back even before then to before the 2021 election, Justin Trudeau had acknowledged the report on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, which said Canada was complicit in genocide. Remember when he accepted at face value that very conclusion? He recognized the need for a national public inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And we have commissioners who came back with findings of fact and with calls to action. We thank them for their work, we applaud their work, and we accept their findings, including that what happened amounts to genocide. So again, I wonder how we can go from in 2018, the idea that you know, Canada is not quite the best. We've got a lot of work to do, but we're getting there. To Canada is a perpetrator of genocide. To Canada is the best country in the world. I feel like we maybe have skipped a few different steps along the way here. Now, I asked him a question in the 2021 election. This was at the Scrum following the leaders debate, my one and only opportunity to put a question to Justin Trudeau in many, many years, given the painstaking lengths through which the Trudeau government goes to keep independent media away from Justin Trudeau. And I asked him very specifically about that, because I actually believe words have meaning. I believe words like genocide have meaning. And I also don't like the logical fallacies that we can create if we want to one day say that Canada is doing something and the next day never speak of it again. This was that exchange in Gatineau. Minister, in 2019, you accepted the assertion of the... Prime Minister, in 2019, you accepted the assertion of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls report that Canada had engaged in genocide. More than two years later, do you believe that Canada is still engaging in genocide? And if not, what's changed? And, and if so, what are you doing about it? Well, when I visited Cowessess First Nations uh, to uh, grieve with them uh, over the unmarked graves of uh, the children that we had uh, so cruelly mistreated as a country and ripped away from their families over uh, the past many, many generations and decades. We also took a very concrete step forward on removing kids at risk from the provincial system of treatment and keeping them in their communities, in their language. And it is concrete steps like that that actually doesn't just grieve over the terrible tragedies of the past, but takes steps to correct and move forward that makes all the difference. 
I have to apologize, by the way, that I'm wearing... I forgot that I was wearing a mask in that moment. I just blocked that from my mind. That was the... That was like the one thing that everyone had to do to be in the room, uh, which was unfortunate because, you know, in 2019, we had to sue our way into the debate. In 2021, we were accredited. Rebel had to sue. But it's like, I didn't want to make the principled stand after going that far of like getting thrown out for not wearing a mask when it would be my my one opportunity to ask Justin Trudeau a question. But uh, nevertheless, you see, so you could like barely hear the question. I'm like, Justin, Justin Trudeau, tell me what to do. Uh, which is basically how communicate. I actually do my show like that, actually. It would be great. I wouldn't need to do any prep whatsoever. I could just be like, because that was how we all agreed to speak as a people for the last three years. If you, By the way, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm like covering my mouth to, to mimic the highly, highly effective masks. They don't block COVID, but they block speech. So uh, anyway, the point of all of this is that Justin Trudeau was realizing in that moment that he had been forcing himself to come up with an answer for why Canada had one time a year earlier been a genocidal nation, but by 2019 was not. And his answer was, well, we've, you know, rejigged some of the federal program spending. That, like, imagine if you could just spend your way out of genocide by reallocating, <laughs> by reallocating which level of government is dealing with which welfare program and which child support uh, or child welfare program, because that was basically what he did. So we have vanquished our genocidal uh, tendencies as a nation. We are once again, a country that Justin Trudeau will call the best country in the world. Why does this matter? It matters because the liberals are Canadians of convenience. They are patriotic when it suits them, and they will crap all over Canada when that suits them. The thing that's changed between then and now is that they're up against a leader in Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservatives, who is reinforcing the message that Canadians are sharing around their kitchen tables that Canada is broken. Justin Trudeau is up against a Conservative leader that's pointing out all of the things in this country that are not working. So his only response to that is to gaslight this country into saying that everything is working, to saying that everything is hunky-dory, everything's fine, and anyone who points out the brokenness of Canada is being negative and divisive. So the reason that we're hearing this talking point so regularly from Justin Trudeau now, that we're the best country in the world and we're going to use that momentum moving forward, is because it's the only way that he could really justify his continued leadership of this country. Because if Canada is in a mess after eight years of the Liberals, there isn't really anyone else they can blame. The idea that Stephen Harper is responsible for all of the ills of Canada was uh, maybe believable conceivably for a couple of years, a little bit less plausible with each passing day. Now he is, might as well be blaming John Diefenbaker for the woes of Canada. So that's why this is happening. Justin Trudeau has to campaign on Canada being great and sunshine and roses because it's the only way that he has a case to sit there in his office and continue to run this country, which if you look at poll numbers, is not particularly a role that Canadians want for him. The uh, polling, and you don't hear me talk about polling often on the show, because nine times out of 10, in fact, I'd say 19 times out of 20, to use the polling language, it is utterly meaningless. It may give you a snapshot of time, but it is subject to all of these different inputs uh, that, more importantly, are not necessarily going to be there nationally and not when there is an election day. 
But when you see a poll show you something so continuously, you should probably start paying attention to what it's saying. And we've seen that the conservatives have not just been riding high in the polls for several weeks and several months, but they've been doing it with a level of consistency that we've not seen in many, many years. And they've also been doing it across demographic groups, specifically among youth. This has always been the group that conservatives have the hardest time breaking through to. But uh, one poll I'll show you right now from Abacus, which breaks down voting intention by generation, shows the conservatives winning across the board. But look at every single demographic group. They are winning among boomers. They're winning among Gen X, which is the, the friends generation, which shockingly is now over 50. But I apologize for pointing that out. Millennials, they're winning even among Gen Z, the youngest generation of voters, the conservatives are still winning, not as much as they are in other groups, but 30% as opposed to 26, 25, and, and then all of the uh, lower vote shares. So uh, this is something that the liberals have as a big problem, because if Justin Trudeau can't rely on the youth vote, which he always thought he could take for granted, there's no way they can win an election, certainly not a majority. So what is it that the conservatives are doing that's capturing this generation, that's capturing this demographic? I want to bring into the show uh, Sabrina Madeau, who is a fantastic columnist with the National Post and uh, pops up in all fora, in uh, media, in writing, in video. It's great to talk to her. Sabrina, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the millennial aspect here, because this has always been uh, the group that tends to be kind of crapped on as, as a demographic cohort. And I think the, the older you get, the broader millennial becomes. So people say, basically think anyone under 40 is a millennial now, which, which isn't entirely true. But it is a generation that's had a lot of issues with uh, housing, that's had a lot of issues with finding work, that's had a lot of these challenges that are really being tackled by Pierre Polyev right now. And, and do you think it's that simple, that you know this is a generation that says the status quo has failed them, Pierre Polyev is talking about it, and that's why they're leaning conservative? I'd go further than saying the status quo has failed them. The liberals under Trudeau have specifically failed them. And as we know, millennials were a huge part of Trudeau's win back in 2015, and even to a lesser extent in 2019 and 2021. Uh, but now we're seeing huge shifts. Um, a recent abacus poll showed in the 18 to 34 demographic, the CPC is up 10 points. Now they took the same poll right after the 2021 election, and it was the Liberals up seven points in that demographic. So that's a 17 point swing, which is hugely significant. And we haven't seen young people in Canada turn to the Conservatives in these sorts of numbers in, well, my lifetime for sure, but perhaps ever. Yeah, and, and I think that basically there, there is a lot of vote parking that we see in polling, which is why I get nervous about polls that take place a lengthy period before an election where, you know, someone gets a phone call about an election that they're not even thinking of and they sort of blurt out what they think at the moment, which might not carry to the election. But in this case, I don't think that's what's happening here, because I think people in general are in a bit of a, a crisis point here. You have the housing issue is probably the best example of this. And, and I also look at Gen Xers, which are, are very heavily skewed to the conservatives in this poll. They're the people that are getting to that point where they're starting to think about what their Gen Z or Gen Z kids are going to be doing in two, three, four years. So you can actually see why boomers, which have always been the conservative uh, loyalists, are the ones that are actually most suited to voting liberal right now, because they're the ones that really have the least to lose as far as all of the things we're talking about. Absolutely. It's been millennials and Gen Z who have taken the brunt of a lot of the inequality that popped out 
over the pandemic and over Trudeau's eight years in government, whether it's housing, we have two generations, um, probably another one coming up that's locked out of home ownership, not just home ownership, but affordable rentals. They are having to move to other provinces, even other countries, lose their social ties, uh, just to be able to afford a place to live. Uh, affordability, inflation is also impacting them and their wages in the prime of their careers. And in terms of the pandemic, we saw that the measures brought in, um, the lockdowns had a really disproportionate mental health effect on young people as well. So you combine all of these things together. And there are a lot of hot button issues where young people are very, very frustrated and they want change. And I think that's part of it. So those are the issues that are impacting the millennial and Gen Z vote. But there's also a personality, personal component with Trudeau. When we look at polling, millennials are saying, we dislike Trudeau a lot more then we actually dislike the Liberal Party. So they feel a particular sense of betrayal and disillusionment from him. And that's what makes this election so key, and especially the decision of whether Trudeau decides to run again. Uh, because a lot of these voters will be potentially voting Conservative for the first time. And we know when people cast a ballot for a party, they're more likely to do so again. And we know after they've cast a ballot for the same party twice, that often becomes a lifetime pattern. So this is a really big change election, not potentially just for right now, but decades down the road and could spell a lot of trouble, perhaps the end of the Liberal Party. I know the poll that I was referencing and other polling doesn't go into the motivation necessarily. It just talks about that surface level vote intention. But I wanted to try to dig a little bit beyond that. There's that apocryphal Churchill quote, which Churchill never actually said, but I think is nonetheless a useful quote that, you know, if you're not a liberal by uh, 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by 40, you have no brain. And there are variations of that, like, you know, 25 and 50, 30 and 50. But basically the whole point is that you're expected to be a leftist when you're young. And then when you grow up and have have responsibilities, you're going to be more conservative. And I'm wondering if we can draw from this polling any sense of an ideological shift. Do we think young people are, are inherently becoming more conservative because of the realities of the world? Or do we think it is just something as superficial as vote choice or vote preference? I think the, real, the economic realities are what are pushing them to fiscal conservatism, as long with, along with seeing what the spending impact by the Liberals has had on their lives, the inflationary impact, the um, way it's fueled housing to such an extreme, extreme bubble. Uh, so they've really come into realizing the um, economic benefits of conservatism at a much younger age than their predecessors and other generations. Usually when you talk about you become a conservative around 40, why is that? You probably own a home, you have children, you're starting your family, you're in the prime of your career. So those economic considerations tend to become more important. But we're in such an economically disastrous place right now, particularly for our youth, that they're having that realization a heck of a lot earlier. And when it comes to the social issues that fueled Trudeau into office and initially got him their support, um, it's hard to care too much about some of these social justice issues up in the sky when you can't afford rent, you can't afford groceries, you can't afford to have children, um, you're looking at maybe even living on the street. That's, that's a core issue. When you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's like number one, how do I live and how do I eat? And they're realizing they can't do that under Trudeau's liberals. Yeah, I think immigration is a great example of that. And I know you had a column about this a month ago that I thought was quite poignant. And you talk about 
how when people see the rising, rising numbers of immigration and also rising, rising house costs, uh, house cost issues and declining supply, it's not hard to draw a line between these two. And, and the liberals have always been very hesitant to do so. And in fact, they've uh, continued to say we need more immigrants, you know, getting up to 500,000 a year. Uh, but even this week, the liberals have appeared to see a little bit of pushback on that. All of these uh, columnists that are, I'd say, not at all conservative are starting to point out, okay, maybe maybe we're overdoing it on immigration when, when we have the, this crisis point on, on housing. And then you throw in international students into the mix. We're, we're looking at about 900,000 this year, uh, which even if this is not all permanent residents, that's 900,000 people that will need to be housed and will need to live in this country for at least a few years. And I'm wondering where you think that is going to go, because the conservatives right now are in a bit of a bind because they don't want to be the anti-immigrant party, which is, I think, feeding into the most uh, inhospitable portrayals of them. But I also think public opinion is, is turning on this issue right now. It is. We've seen in polls that now 11% of Canadians, according to advocates, say immigration is one of their top three issues. 63% say that the current levels of immigration are tied into higher housing costs. And 61% actually say they think the Liberals' current immigration targets are too high. Um, and the reason why it's becoming an undeniable issue is because if you look at a chart that shows the spike in huge immigration, versus the spike in house prices, you can see there is a connection. They both begin to spike at the same time. Um, and I think it needs to be made clear by anyone who speaks about this issue that this isn't immigrant faults themselves. This is not an immigrant problem. It's a systemic problem in terms of our government hasn't decided to think about the infrastructure, the supports, the housing behind having these numbers. And of course, immigrants are important to society and bring a lot of benefits in many different ways, but we need to be able to both support them and support the current population for this to be sustainable. Because in a worst case scenario, if we don't do that, we've seen it in other societies, people become resentful, anti-immigrant sentiment grows, and that is the last thing that we want to see. The Liberals talk about sustainability in many other areas. They should be thinking about whether their immigration policy is sustainable. Yeah, I mean, to use a, a crass example, if a bar opens the doors and lets a certain number of people in and everyone there finds it's too packed and too busy, it's the fault of the people that opened the doors that didn't say, OK, maybe we need to, you know, reduce this uh, capacity here. And I think that that's to go back to your Maslow's hierarchy parallel, which I thought was a very good one. This is kind of the problem here is that the liberals viewed immigration as being a moral issue, not an economic issue. And they wanted to get that big arbitrary number. I mean, 500,000 is just this grand arbitrary number. But in practice, there are very real implications to that increase. And, and this is where we have an example of they're skipping right ahead to self-actualization. Well, the people in this country already, immigrant and native born, can't afford a home. Absolutely. And, you know, it's often newcomers who suffer the brunt of this even more than Canadians who are already settled here, um, especially yeah, when I mean, it comes so Just to interrupt, they're going students. to the most expensive cities, typically. Like, they're not, you know, yep. settling in Canada and going to Red Deer. They're going to Vancouver, Toronto. Absolutely. And when they're international students, which right now is open-ended, and I believe I just saw that we're expecting 900,000 international yeah. students to come in this year. Last year, it was only 550,000. And the fact that I'm saying only, that's with a big asterisk. But they we've seen the areas around colleges and universities have seen some of the most dramatic rent increases um london ontario which is a big college town has seen an 86 percent increase in the rent of one bedroom since 2019 
and they've seen 20% increases summer over summer. Uh, we hear stories now where students and international students, they're going to food banks, they're living in tents. There have been stories this week about parents having to rent out parking spaces for their kids to live in a van and they're setting up a heater because that's the only place they can afford to be in and attend the school they want to attend. Um, when it comes to international students, this makes them ripe for exploitation. Um, there's been issues with students falling into sex trafficking because they get put in these terrible situations where they say, you want to make rent? You want a place under your home? I, I know you're vulnerable and who are you going to report to because they're afraid that they'll be sent back home. So this issue is really, it's a predatory system for everyone. And it's absolutely not a moral immigration system and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be reconsidered. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from London, Ontario, and we have a very large university. We have a very large college as well. Uh, India, in particular, supplies massive numbers of, of international students that go to both of those schools. And, you know, a lot of them are here for, for all the right reasons. They're not the problem. And there have been so many stories, though, in the last few years of, uh, for example, apartments that have been rented out above capacity, where you're shoving people into these, like, closets in a basement with no windows, which is illegal, and renting it out as a room and that's something that people take and if you order you know DoorDash or Uber Eats in London more often than not you're going to get a, a foreign student there and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that it's a perfectly legitimate way to, to earn a living but I know they're not making a lot of money and, and you have problems in London I mean I, I know both the university and the college have had to invest in student food banks so there is a sustainability issue here that no one is speaking about. Yeah we've essentially allowed our student permits to become untapped low-wage permits. Um, and this was especially true when the Liberals opened up um, for students to be able to work as many hours as they want when they come here. Um, and also they're allowing these essentially what are diploma mills to function. And these are schools that are bringing in students. Um, they often don't even really have classrooms or they don't have classrooms that are big enough to accommodate all the students they've allowed in. They provide no sort of student housing, and it's just a pathway into the country where then these students end up working low-wage jobs and often living in really poor conditions. So we don't even need to necessarily be talking about a cap on the number of international students, but we should talk about making sure that when we issue student permits, students are coming here mostly to study, to get an education, and to um, better their lives as, as well as contribute to the Canadian economy. So that can be done by linking the number of permits each institution gets to spaces in a classroom, or perhaps amount of housing they can provide. Um, perhaps even rolling back the number of hours that students can work per week so that they can really focus on attaining those degrees or education that they're here to get. Um, so there are many different ways this can be approached. Um, and again, it needs to be a conversation that's definitely not anti-international student or anti-immigration, but is really about common sense and sustainability because this isn't a problem we want to get worse. Yeah, you raise a few important points there. On the hours worked, it used to be up until very recently, if you were an international student, you could work for up to 20 hours a week, I think it was. Yeah. And and then the government, looking at the labor shortage, said, okay, let's just get rid of that cap and you can work more than 20 hours. And, and it was funny, right after that happened, I was at a, a Tim Hortons and there was a foreign student that walked in and was applying for a job to a coffee shop that hasn't been at full staffing in like four years. So the manager interviewed him on the spot. And as I was waiting for my bagel, I, I could hear this conversation. And she had said, well, I need someone to work overnights. And he was saying, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'll, I'll work that. But 
you're not an effective student if you're working overnights, 40 hours a week at the local Tim Hortons. So something in this was not computing and, and certainly was not keeping with the spirit of uh, what international student programs are supposed to be. So uh, great points all around. Uh, you can read her in the National Post, and I would encourage you to do that. Sabrina Mado, great to have you on the show at long last. Thanks, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, and that Tim Horton story I shared was not all that long ago. And and I think that, again, it's when you solve one problem, <laughs> you create another. And, you know, one thing I, because I initially when I heard it, I was kind of supportive, which is, okay, we've got a labor shortage. If we've got students that are able to work a, a few extra hours, then go for it. But I wasn't thinking of immediately the abuse that would come of this, which is you get some, you know, like crappy little storefront that decides to register as being a technical college and all of a sudden is churning out uh, visas for students that aren't really there for an education. They're there for a backdoor way into being able to live and work in Canada somewhat indefinitely. And again, you do a you know, one-year program here, you renew, you get another, you get another, you get another. And it's not hard to imagine how all of these problems will start coming about. So Justin Trudeau has broken the immigration system. This goes back to when he decided that overnight we could bring in 50,000 refugees from Syria for sole, the sole reason of spiting the conservatives. That, that was the only reason the Trudeau refugee resettlement program in that election came the way it did. It was because Trudeau wanted to play the Harper is racist card. Harper doesn't want Syrians here. I love the Syrians. I want the Syrians. He went to Pearson Airport. He started shaking all their hands as they walked past and then tweeted that obnoxious welcome home uh, tweet. But for a lot of those people, and by the way, a lot of those people are the ones that are now protesting gender ideology in schools. And the liberals are markedly less hospitable to these uh, Syrian refugees that they rolled out the red carpet for a few years ago. But nevertheless, I, I, that's besides the point, but had to bring that up while we were on the subject. The whole point of what Trudeau is doing here right now is putting the virtue signaling aspirational target above the economic realities, which is that immigration is broken, housing is broken, labor is broken, Canada is broken. And whenever the conservatives start talking about this, the liberals cannot argue that it's not in any fair or reasonable way. The only thing they can do is to turn around and say, you know what? Everything's fine. We're the best country in the world, by gosh. I would love it for one of the, because they won't accredit me to their press conferences. But if you're one of these mainstream media reporters that has access to Trudeau press conferences, I would love to say, how did Canada go from being a perpetrator of genocide four years ago to being the best country in the world right now? What about that is the best? I don't think he's going to answer. I think it's going to be like when he tried to say what a water bottle was and he just goes, uh, but the, the water genocide uh, bottle, drink, bo drink box, butter, butter, bottle, bottle. That's my ringtone, by the way, what I just did there. Uh, that's going to be what happens. Or when he tried to like spit out the LGBTQ2A. I, actually, I got it on the first try, didn't I? LGBT. No, I missed the plus. You always got to do the plus. Anyway, when he struggled to spit that one out as well. So all of that is where we are headed as a country right now. If you call out the obvious, if you point out that the emperor is not wearing any clothes, you are accused of any number of other things. So we're left with this blissful denial, gaslighting, on a national scale. That does it for us. We are going to end things there. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. We'll be back tomorrow here on True North with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.